You're listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. To find out more about the Whole Vineyard Church, go to wholevineyard.co.uk. So we're in Nehemiah 9, and we're going to read verses 1 to 17. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, um, some Bibles at the back if you, if you want one. So Nehemiah 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And they spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God, and the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Perahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way that they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land that you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate. 
You're slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. I hope everyone is doing well. We, well, many of us have just come back from our national 18 to 30s student young adults conference, the cause to live for. And um, most people that went aren't here because it finished late last night. And uh, it was a remarkable weekend. The Spirit of God came in great power. I think unlike anything that generation had experienced before, um, we, we cast out demons in the, the team room. <laughs> and I was like, oh, code red. <laughs> we saw people getting healed and people getting saved. It was inc- just absolutely incredible. And I'm expecting that God is going to do something amongst us. How many of you know the God of conferences is still the same God as Sundays? And still the same God as Mondays, and still the same God as our worst moments and our best moments. And so the presence of God is here in the room and is going to move and speak and do stunning things this morning. Um, We are on a series on Nehemiah. We're not far off coming into land. Next week is actually our final week in Nehemiah. I hope you've loved it as much as we have. We have got guest speakers next week who are going to kind of bring it to land. John and Abby Flavel. Brilliant friends, incredible friends of ours from uh, River City Church in the east of the city. They're going to be doing the morning and the evening. We're so excited about that. And then we're into Christmas. Who's ready for Christmas? Emotionally, not practically, obviously. <laughs> no one will be ready. Has anyone got a Christmas tree up yet? The holiday ended, and I walked in, and I was like, this is a joke. <laughs> this is too early. Um, So Nehemiah, we've been on a journey through the book of Nehemiah. If you have missed it, uh, Nehemiah is a prophet in the Old Testament whose heart is broken. He's living in exile. His heart is broken for his home, the city of Jerusalem. The walls have been torn down, set on fire. The people of God dispersed and invaded, and it's just a nightmare. God puts it on his heart to be part of the solution. So he goes back home, and he begins this incredible rebuilding project, shows remarkable leadership. But... um, And then he rebuilds the walls, and then, how many of you know the the rebuilding project doesn't finish there? Um, The rebuilding project, uh, there's a second part to it, which was not just about rebuilding, it was actually about reimagining the way life should be for God's people in this new city and this new life. And over the last three weeks, we have been exploring and unpacking this reimagined city and asking, what does future church look like for us? Three weeks ago, the first message uh, since the walls had been rebuilt, we, we recognized the church has to be one of consecration and worship, where we set ourselves apart for him, for God and God alone. Uh, John spoke brilliantly last week on Nehemiah about being a people who gather around the Word of God, who, who uh, kind of pursue the Word of God with a devotion, who build our lives and our homes and our families and our kids on the Word of God, on His foundation. And today in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see another aspect of this kind of future church that I believe God wants to see in increased measure in us. We see the people of God gathering around this thing called confession of sins and a reestablishing of covenant. There's this moment in Nehemiah 2 where it says they stood 
and they confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. And the rest of Nehemiah 9, we didn't really have time to read the whole thing, um, but the rest of it is this incredible prayer of confession. It's one of the great Old Testament prayers outside of the Psalms, telling the story of God's faithfulness to his people and the story of humanity's waywardness despite his faithfulness. And then this picture of God keeping on stepping into the mess and the brokenness of his people and continuing to bring them home and bring restoration. No matter how many times they wander away, he brings them back. And it's a beautiful song and dance of confession. And today I want to talk about confessing our sins. Welcome to church. This is your first time. (laughs) Now, along with fasting... I would say that confession of sins is one of the most forgotten and avoided practices in the way of Jesus. Confession is costly. It is painful, and yet it is beautiful and healing and transformative. Just uh, last night, Cause to Live For, a guy came up for ministry, and I said, how can I pray for you? And he began to confess a sin of addiction to pornography. And so much shame and guilt and this, this lust which had crippled him for many, many years. And I was able in that moment with no shame and no guilt as he brought it out into the light to speak forgiveness over him and healing. And it was, uh, it was beautiful. I'm just feeling the presence of God and um, I'm a bit of a mess, so please help. Um, <laughs> Confession of sins is painful and beautiful and healing and transformative and deeply freeing. Confessing our sins is incredibly countercultural. We live in a world today in a culture, don't we, don't we, where there is a low value on truth and a high value on individual freedom. There has been a degradation of moral law and yet a virulent increase in intolerance. In other words, the lines between right and wrong have been blurred and redrawn in a million different places by a million different people. Being cancelled has become a cultural phenomenon. Social media hosts frequent witch hunts where people are caught, forced to apologize, and shamed without possibility of forgiveness. On the surface, perfection is idolized and imperfection is hidden. When sins come out into the public, stones are thrown and grace is an impossibility. There is no room in our culture for restoration and certainly not forgiveness. I read a brilliant article this week by the secular magazine Vox, and it did an article called America's Struggle for Forgiveness. And it says this, the state of modern outrage is a cycle. We wake up mad, we go to bed mad, and in between the only thing that might change is what's making us angry. The one gesture that could offer substantive change, forgiveness, seems perpetually beyond our reach. Listen to this. In other words, everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven. And no one knows how to negotiate forgiveness at a cultural level. In an era of polarized politics, cancel culture, and the tendency of social media users to conduct informal modern tribunals, aka witch hunts, without a lot of due process, seeking and granting public forgiveness is increasingly complicated. I would say not far off impossible. But is there a practice from the way of Jesus that can help us negotiate forgiveness and offer freedom and healing at a cultural level? I believe the answer is yes to that, and I believe it's unpopular, but I believe it is the practice of confessing our sins. For Christians, 
Confession of sins is not only encouraged, it is celebrated. And it is a door through which revival arrives. Now, I wonder what comes to your mind when I speak about confessing your sins. Maybe you think of the daily or weekly religious act of confession, going into a confessional box and speaking your sins to a faceless priest and being told they've been wiped away and then doing what you want the rest of the week and going back. Maybe you've grown up in that tradition and it's felt more like a religious duty than a healing practice. For others, maybe confession has gone really wrong and it comes with so much shame and guilt and uh, maybe you've told someone something you've done wrong in the past and the conversation didn't go really well and you ended up feeling more condemned than free. Either one of those, I would suggest, is not the way we should pursue confession. I was trying to work out how to do confession well with our daughter the other day, Ivy, and we thought we had breakthrough. She's now two years old, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the Grow Baby conference, and I had a, so was my mum. My mum was up for Grow Baby, and uh, I had a frantic text, a furious text from my wife, Hannah, who was at home looking after Ivy, and she said, Josh, we have a code red emergency. I've just walked in on Ivy holding a pen, with your mum's very posh, very expensive bag. And there's pen on the bag. And so I'm like, okay, don't worry, we'll work it out, relax. And last last Sunday night I spoke about being a non-anxious presence in the world. I have to admit, Hannah was very much an anxious presence in my life. (laughs) And so I got home and I began to see what I could do to help. I walked in and Hannah is literally crying. She's in tears and she's She's freaking out. There's, there's pen on my mum's bag. And Hannah says, Ivy, uh, well, I said, Hannah, weren't you supervising? And she was crying. She said, that doesn't help. And, um, <laughs> and she, Hannah actually said, Ivy, are you desperate to ruin my relationship with my in-laws? <laughs> uh, I was like, don't worry, we'll fix it. I said, Ivy, what's happened? She said, I draw on nanny bag. And I go, okay, well done, confessing your sins, great job. We began to do what we could to make a difference, scrubbing it with water, um, scrubbing it with soapy water. Nothing seemed to work. So then I thought, right, this needs escalating. What do we do? So I was sent out on an errand to a local leather cobbler's. It was a leather bag. I took the bag with me and I took Ivy with me. And there's a man in the cobbler's. And he said, how can I help you? And I said, Ivy, tell the man what you've done. (laughs) And Ivy said, I draw a nanny bag. And I said, well done, Ivy. Uh, And I gave him the bag, and he was trying to scrape it. And we didn't want to ruin the bag even more. And we knew that if this doesn't get fixed, I I don't really want to confess to to my mum. But we're going to have to do what we're going to have to do. That didn't work. So I went over to Knickknacks on Newland Ave. They've got every cleaning product in history. And so I I went up to the lady, and I said, excuse. She said, how can I help? I said, Ivy, tell the lady what you've done. She said, I draw a nanny bag. I said, well done, you're learning. And so I took, we found some leather cleaner, bought that, came home, tried it on an inconspicuous part of the bag, which it recommends, didn't do anything. Then tried it on the pen, nothing happened. Hannah's freaking out. I then go on eBay and try and put a bid in on a replacement bag. <laughs> I'm completely freaking out. The doorbell goes at four o'clock. The pen is still on the bag. My mum walks in and I say, Ivy, tell mum, tell nanny what you've done. And she goes, I draw a nanny bag. And I say, Mum, we're really sorry. It's Hannah's fault, really. But um, <laughs> Ivy's confessed her sins. And, and Mum came and she said, oh, let me have a look. And she had a look at the bag. And uh, she said, this pen stain? And I went, yeah. She went, that's been on for years. LAUGHTER 
So I would think that's an example of forced confession. <laughs> and that's not how to do parenting. For God's people in Nehemiah, for Jesus, for his disciples, for the early church, confession of sins was a central part of life with God. Why? Well, firstly, confession is the practice by which we bring things into the light which are hidden in darkness and covered in shame. When we confess our sins to God and to others, we actively bring into the open bits of our story scarred and marked by brokenness, and we give them away to God who wants to take them in exchange for forgiveness and healing. Confession breaks the power of secret sin and self-sufficiency. Confession recognizes the sins of our hearts and our people and brings them into God's presence. Confession is the practice which demonstrates a refusal to continue in the way things are. Confession is the means by which we receive healing, the Bible says, healing of our hearts and of our lives and of our relationships. Confession defeats the giant of pride and teaches us to embrace our, our weakness and our limits. It is an act of humility that God uses as fuel to forgive our sins and heal our land. Guys, confession is warfare. It is warfare against our flesh and our pride and our self-importance and our need to have it all together and the need to be right all the time. Confession opens themselves up and says, I do not have it all together. I am not perfect and I need Jesus. Confession breaks the power of shame and releases forgiveness. It reveals a poverty of spirit, which in turn releases the kingdom of God. It carries with it a heart of mourning, which attracts the comfort of God. It is a posture of humility that is a magnet for the power of God. Confession is a beautiful thing, and I'm not surprised the enemy has done his best to stop the church being openly willing to step into confession. Confession is not about a guilt trip or beating yourself up, or feeling sorry for yourself. Confession is about a returning to relationship. It's the refusal to let anything in my life get between me and God and me and my neighbor. I want to bring it out and deal with it and move on into the fullness of what God has for me. Tyler Statton, who leads 24-7 Prayer USA, says this. He says, confession is when we turn to God, we look him in the eyes, we acknowledge his presence here with us, not to judge us, but to rescue us. And I want to suggest this morning that one of the main reasons we avoid confessing our sins is because we really deep down don't believe that God is, really is as loving and kind and gracious and faithful and good and compassionate as he actually is. Deep down, we maybe believe that punishment awaits us when we bring it up into the light, or judgment stands at our door, and it will work out better for us if we keep this stuff hidden. But what if confession was the doorway to healing? What if there's bits of our lives covered in turmoil and anxiety and pain simply because we have not yet let Jesus into that part of our story? James 5 verse 16 says this, "'Therefore confess your sins to one another,' and pray for one another that you may be healed. And my sense is the Spirit of God wants to bring healing and bring freedom today from a lot of stuff that we've got deep down in here that we have not yet let him bring healing to.
So that's a vision for confession. What does it look like to confess our sins? How do we become a people that practice confession? I'll draw three principles out from the passage that Sarah read today. My first principle is this. First of all, guys, in order to step into confession, remember who God is. Remember who God is. As God's people in Nehemiah 9 began this stunning confession, prayer of confession, most of the time they're actually confessing who God is. Most of the time they're recalling and remembering and retelling his story about how faithful and kind. They're reminding themselves of his compassion and his nature and his mercy, how he is the pursuer in this relationship and how he longs to restore us and heal us and heal our land and set us free. Let me read a few verses. Um, Verse 5, Nehemiah 9, they begin this prayer of confession. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Before they confess their sins, they want to remind themselves who God is. It's an important, powerful principle. Verse 17, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert your people. Verse 19, because of your great compassion, you didn't abandon us in the wilderness by day. The pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You tell this story, you gave your good spirit to instruct your people. You didn't withhold your manna from their mouths. Verse 26, let's move on. I've got loads of these. But they were disobedient. Your people rebelled against you. They turned your backs on your law. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies. You oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. If you want an incredible exercise, go through Nehemiah 9. We don't have time to do this. And highlight all the bits of God's nature and character that they remember and retell themselves. This prayer is like a dance of God's faithfulness and humanity's waywardness, but his relentless commitment to loving his people and calling us and them into more. The rhythm is we mess up and God rescues us all the time, all the time. We have not done anything to deserve his kindness. We have not. He is a good father who loves us. We walk away. We hand over our inheritance, our birthright, and yet he restores us time and time again. And ultimately, our great rescuer is Jesus, who went to the cross for every single one of us. He's not a God who is quick to anger and slow to compassion, who watches from afar, who waits for our sins so he can punish them. He's a father who waits with open arms for his kids. If you want a brilliant picture of confession, it's the, the prodigal son running home. Just, here I am. Here's everything I've got. I'm a mess. I'm broken. And the father didn't even let him get a word out. He just grabbed him and hugged him. This is what confession is about. And this chapter, I think, can be summarized in two words. But God. We did this, but God. We were unfaithful, but God. We were messy, and we sinned, and we rebelled, but God, but God. Church, right now, whatever you're going through, there is a huge but God waiting to be seen and confessed over your life. So firstly, they remembered who God is. Secondly, they began to break the power of the past. Notice how much of the prayer of confession is confessing sins from history. 
Notice how God's people confess their sins, it says in verse 2, and the sins of their fathers. Now, I am not saying we are responsible for the sins of those that came before us, but I am saying that the sins of those who have come before us often bleed brokenness into our reality today. A generational wounding from the sins of the past. And so in order to step into God's future for us and the story that he's writing over us and for us to live and thrive as a future church, we don't want to let anything from the past hold us back and hinder us. Jesus has come to set us free from slavery. And so many conversations I had over the last couple of days with people that I prayed for was breaking the power of something that had happened to them, words that had been spoken over to them, things that had been done to them, things that their parents had said or parents had done or even stuff that their grandparents had done to their parents, which has then caused a dysfunctional level of brokenness, which is um, messing with their today. I love verse 36. Well, I don't love it, but it's, it's an important verse. Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. So God gave the, the promised land, as it were, to the people of God, to the fathers. But because of what happened generationally, there is now a slavery is being inherited down the line. So it's, be, it's, in, it's possible, guys, for us to be enslaved by things which have happened in our past, even generationally, things which haven't been dealt with and confessed and brought into the light. Sins of the past, words spoken over us, sins done to us, even to our parents, even generations back, which reap a harvest in our present and God wants to bring freedom. Let me ask you a deep question. Is there anything in your story, however far back it goes, which is still bleeding pain into your present because Jesus wants to bring freedom? Jesus wants to bring freedom. And when we bring things like this into the light, we're able to sever the power of it and receive forgiveness and healing and freedom. So confessing our sins goes beyond simply telling God something we've done, done wrong. Confessing our sins positions ourselves for Jesus to do a deep healing work in our lives. As he peels back the layers of our brokenness and brings forgiveness and wholeness. When we speak to God, when we tell him our story, when we, say, when we speak to maybe a safe two or three people in our church, our home group leaders, we are declaring that whatever has happened in our past no longer, no longer has a hold on us. And we bring things into the light for Jesus to bring as healing. If we don't do that, we may still be living as slaves in the promised land. So is there anything from the past which has a hold on you still? Words, actions, sins. A few months ago, I was able to pray for someone in our church who had a history in witchcraft. And they came and they confessed it and they, we burned all of their um, scrolls. And we just severed it. It was powerful. It was a beautiful moment as this person again pledged fresh allegiance to, to Jesus. Stuff happens and we need to sever it. Um, I want to suggest for us today that the confession of sins should be a normal and regular part of growing and maturing in the Christian life. Now, I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of growing up in Christian maturity. Many of us will think of spiritual growth like climbing a mountain. 
But what if it's more like an archaeological dig where we expose more and more layers of our brokenness to Jesus for healing? And through confession, we open ourselves up in vulnerability, stripping back the layers of our pain and shame, and we receive healing and freedom. So firstly, we remember who God is. Secondly, we confess the sins of the past. Thirdly, we adopt the regular practice of confession. Here's what you need to know, guys. Confession is not failure. I love this quote from Tyler Staten again, who says this, the lie that plagues the modern church is that spiritual maturity means that as I grow up in the faith, I should confess less and less. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means confession is not a white flag, but a victory cry. Confessing our sins is not a display of weakness. Instead, it's a display of strength. As we grow in spiritual maturity, it's not about me having to confess less. It's about me having more freedom to confess. The chains of sin and shame and addiction no longer have power over me because I know who I am and I know whose I am. And so as I follow Jesus, I make it my life and pattern to live in the light and walk before him by the Spirit, keeping short accounts with God and with my neighbor waging the spiritual war against my flesh, wanting to look good from the outside and wear masks and hide. And I know that that is hard. And it is a journey that we go on. But I promise you, as we just step into the light, it's the most beautiful and freeing thing. And in this church, it is a safe space to bring all of yourself before God and before his people. And ultimately, confessing our sins leads to covenant. Right at the end of Nehemiah chapter 9, they says they reestablish covenant. What is covenant? It is, is a promise. It is a, a sacrificial covenant relationship between God and God's people, recognizing that in the past we've wandered away, but today here I am with everything I am before you, and I am committing with fidelity to offer my everything before you, Lord Jesus. And I believe God is looking for a covenant people once again who refuse to bow to the idols of our age, which have emptied the church of power. God wants to restore himself as the king on the throne. And so as we confess our sins, we receive forgiveness. We receive healing and wholeness. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As this exchange happens, we give him our stuff we, we bring it into the light. Light pours in and we get set on our way to, in the words of Jesus, go and sin no more. We're able to have a fresh start and a clean slate. So I don't know where you are at today, guys. I don't know what you're struggling with, where your pain is, what lingers in your past that still grips onto you. But I want you to know that Jesus wants to bring light and life and freedom and healing to you. And keeping stuff in the dark just doesn't work. So three simple thoughts before we move into a time of ministry on where do we start with confession. Number one, spend some time in the quiet with God. Become aware of your life and your story, the joys and the triumphs, but also the reality of brokenness within you, the shadow self, the bits of your story which you are least proud of. And ask the Holy Spirit to just bring it to the surface, anything that is hidden in darkness, and then tell Jesus about it. 
Talk to him. Invite Jesus in. Don't rush this, but let him love you as you confess your stuff. Receive forgiveness. Those sins that you speak of get cast as far as the east is from the west away from you because of the blood of Jesus. And then find a safe space in church to talk. I would recommend wholeheartedly our home groups. It's a safe environment where you can speak to um, a home group leader to just go on the journey with or find some friends, people that you trust during ministry this morning. Just come and just bring something that's hidden into the light. I appreciate it as a big thing. And that is confession of sins. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. We would love to connect with you and welcome you home to church. To find out more, go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash connect. And stay up to date with all that is going on in the life of our church. Go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash church news and sign up for our weekly mailing. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.